Welcome back to There Will Be Movies. This is a podcast where we talk about 25 of our favourite movies from a given decade. Volume 3 is the 90s, baby. My name is Matt Waters. I'm joined on this endeavour by a person who... Uh, ben, were you born yet at the time of, of the release of, of uh, episode 56? Is a Few Good Men released December 11th, 1992. Ben, did you exist? I did. I was born April 1st, 1992. <sighs> I am All right. a little over six months old at this point. Okay, but you're not six months old now, so how are you right now? I'm 29. Double jabs now? Double jabs. No side effects, so I'm recording a podcast. For a moment it was like, am I going to have to cancel this if I'm like <laughs> shivering away in bed? But yeah. no, I've had no side effects. The only side effect is I really love the movie Old, and I am on a critical island for that one. Could this be one. your first ever bad take? It was an existential crisis for me watching that movie, uh-huh. and it was just so terrifying in a very real way that okay. I kind of have to applaud it, even though... Are you scared of getting old as well? I am. That's one of yeah. my fears. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's, it's it's terrifying. Terrifying idea. All right. Um, oh, God, a... it would upset me if I joined you on that one. If we... <laughs> For, for context, if anyone only listens to There Will Be Movies, across the site, we have been trying to find Ben's bad take, because everyone has one. <laughs> I have many. And confoundingly, it seems Ben has only good opinions, or, think... or has no unpopular opinion. <laughs> Jer- Jerome does not like my Fruitvale Station opinion. Yeah, but which like, is... Fruitvale Station is such a tiny deal that, like... <laughs> I don't love Fruitvale Station. I think it's good. So yeah, yeah, this could be your first one where you're like, yeah, I like this thing that's been lampooned. It is funny to look at the letterbox and see the ratings on my letterbox range from five stars to one stars. So it's it's a wild spread. This movie. <laughs> it's an important time in a guy's life. Speaking of bad takes, one of mine is that I have a huge thing for the works of Mr. Aaron Sorkin. I really liked the newsroom. I really love Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. You've never seen West. Wing. I've never seen The West Wing. It's most, it's most acclaimed work. You know, there's just so much of it. Uh, it's sitting in a box upstairs. I'll watch it. To be it. fair, if you love the Sorkin stuff, you only have to watch the first four seasons. I mean, I understand it. I, I feel I have seen it without having seen it, because, I mean, if you just fire up one of those Sorkinisms YouTube videos, it's the same stuff in everything. We discussed both Social Network and Moneyball on this podcast previously, in which... I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I feel we agreed that, like, they managed to harness the essence of Sorkin, but, like, without the bad stuff that comes with that, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, so the thing is, I think Sorkin works better when he has another director. Like, so, did you see Trial of Chicago 7 last year? I did not. I did not hear good things at all. (laughs) Yeah, Trial of Chicago 7 varies between, I think it's fine, but it's Uh fine only in terms of the fact that there are some performances I liked. The Uh script is bad, badly directed, and it's only because he has kind of like good performances in it that it kind of drags it across into being watchable. Well, he will forever attract good talent because I think people want to read his wordy-wordy dialogue. Exactly, but he he was the completely wrong person to direct that movie. Mm -hmm. It is just badly directed. There are sequences in that movie where I'm like, oh my god, chill the fuck out and like especially <laughs> especially when you're coming off a run where like his last three movies apart from Molly's Game which obviously he was his directorial debut but he's worked with Fincher with Bennett Miller and with Danny Boyle Mm-hmm. who really knock it out of the park in all three of those adaptations of his stuff and my hottest take is that like that is the strongest stretch of his like movie career is those three movies I think they're all stronger scripts than A Few Good Men um, really? okay yeah 
But when he has a bit more control over what's happening, I think things start to fall apart. And The West Wing is kind of the cleanest example of like him being able to be at the peak of his powers, but Studio 60 and the newsroom are kind of like the <laughs> the myth that making of Aaron Sorkin has kind of hit critical pitch and he's just allowed to do whatever the fuck he wants. And yeah. it kind of gets in the way of the good stuff that is in, in yeah. both of those shows. I think someone did post a clip the other day of like, here's a good actual moment from the newsroom, which is, I think it's the final season when they're discussing the the climate disaster. Mm-hmm. And it's just this scene with Paul Liebstein is, is on the... Oh, show, yeah. And he says after- it's already too late and you're all fucked. Yeah. <laughs> That's a fun scene. It's a lot yeah. better than saluting because they've killed Osama bin Laden or the fix you scene where like they've triumphantly decided not to reveal that someone's died in the hospital, unlike every single other journalistic source in the country. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the main issue is, is Aaron Sorkin pretending that he is the last great bastion of like what makes good things. Yes. But he is undeniably talented. Yeah, I, I, will, I will say, I feel I have grown out of it a tiny bit. I used to like worship the man and was like, this is the platonic ideal of screenwriting. Like, there is no more talented writer out there in the world. Everything he makes is gold. I am now (laughs) painfully aware of uh, his many failings. He is a deeply flawed man. I think he taught me, uh, I guess I suppose I used to have a very, I guess you call it blue and red, I was going to say black and white view of the world, of like, you know, Democrats good, Republicans bad, it's very simple, liberals good somehow, you know, all of this. And I guess he taught me like there are other kinds of both of those things, where he is like a very specific kind of Republican (laughs) who sounds like not a Republican, as I mean the newsroom is a giant takedown of modern Republicans and the Tea Party and all that stuff, but like he himself is clearly a Republican. He has a massive hard on for like the ideals of the nation. It's complicated, like and you can see it in this film where like it is simultaneously like going all in on aspects of the military and then also just has just the most stonking erection over the military. The scene where they arrive in Cuba mm. and they've got all the all the jets behind them and whatnot. And I was like, okay, and knowing what the rules are for like how you can use military stuff in movies and it's mm-hmm. like you can't be critical of the military and stuff like that. And you see the scenes in this here where it's like, I am sure the military read this script and went like, right, but the military tribunal (laughs) has to succeed and they have to arrest him because he's a a bad egg and stuff like that. Like, Uh, They they disavowed the movie. They don't like it at all. Yeah, so all of the military stuff is stages and, and, and like they got access to no real locations. Yeah, they hate it. Because, you know, even if they arrest Jessup at the end, like, it's tricky. Like, there, there is, there are both pro and anti-military messages here. I think it's exactly like his views of America in general. It's like, right, let's criticise the shit out of it, but then do a big monologue about how America used to be brilliant, and it could be again, and it's, it's sort of... I think he just has a very naive, rose-tinted glasses, nostalgia kind of feeling for America and the police and the army and and the law everything he sees this like prestigious elite pure original idea and he wants to get back to that and away from the bullshit so there are times where he sounds like a great big lefty left person as he just goes in on the right but then it's like at the end of the day I think a lot of his values actually are (laughs) quite right like the way he writes women 
it scans as very progressive and, and pro-woman, but there are undoubtedly huge problems with a number of his treatments of female characters. They are very woman written by man. There yeah. have been, you know, there were blow-ups with him and Olivia Munn on the making of the newsroom. It's tricky because, again, like, he's writing them to be these perfect... Like, he's almost over-praising women, and it's like they're all up on pedestals and they're not real people. I, I don't know. I guess he doesn't even know he does it. Because, I mean, this story comes from his sister, who basically was the Demi Moore character, working on this real-life case with a code red. She told it to him over the phone, he wrote it all on napkins, bought a computer because he was fucking dirt broke, went in on the money to buy a computer with his friends, wrote it as a as a play. And you see that very weird credit based on his play at the beginning, <laughs> which is a bit douchey, but hey. I don't think the play, like, set the world on fire. Like, I think people thought it was good, but it didn't, like, win anything or anything like like that. I, I was looking at like who was in it and it's like Stephen Lang yeah. and Coulson from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it gets turned into a film but like I think he thinks he's writing good authentic women. We will get to Demi more later don't okay, worry. Okay, okay. But yeah he's a complicated fellow I suppose would be the summary and this is a long way of saying I liked Aaron Sorkin I watch most of his stuff and also this is just a very famous movie thanks to that final rant by Jack Nicholson so I've seen it many times. Benjamin, um, yes. you aren't an obsessive Sorkinite, but I assume this isn't one that you watched after something that parodied it. Or maybe you did. Um, I don't actually know when I first watched this. I, okay. I jump around the Sorkins where like, uh-huh. I, I also watched Studio 60 before I watched The West Wing, but that's because what I watched Studio 60 as it was airing in the UK, so I'm 14 yes. years old. Studio um, 60 was on TV over here. and I The West Wing probably was somewhere, but I don't know. It just I feel like it was like a, a thing that everyone knew exactly existed but it was harder to get to and then they put Studio 60 on like Channel 4 which is very readily available. Yeah so like I watched Studio 60, I watched The Newsroom, I watched Social Network, watched Moneyball and I think somewhere in that I must have I mm. must have chucked on a few good men. It was like cool I understand I think it is a good movie I think the strengths of it are more evenly distributed than in some of the other movies where I think this script is a weak point for Sorkin in that it kind of over explains so much in that to jump ahead like this the section when they are like spitballing how they're gonna get jessup to spill the beans on the stand and they're like oh he's desperate to say it. he's and i just kind of wish that like we didn't have stuff like that in the movie and just kind of like mm. you rolled the court case and things were happening surprisingly instead the movie kind of has to it feels the urge to double down and explain why things are happening and it's like no 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 just just go with the moment you don't need the characters to i mean soliloquize at this point i feel some of that is first time screenwriter cowing to producer pressure and and I generally assume that producers think everyone watching is an idiot and needs everything I, explained. Yeah, I think it's it's a mixture of that, and I think it's a mixture of that kind of stuff probably works better in a play where you are I'm saying less, what you feel all the time. <laughs> yeah, and you're less in control of the visual language yeah. and stuff. Like you can't convey things with visuals in the same way that you can a movie. You can't do yeah. insert shots and things like that on a play. Everything has to be big and everything has to be verbalized because you can't do interiority acting like yeah. you can in a movie. I suppose that's true, but I mean. I mean, they they make no attempt to dumb down like the legalese and all of oh, that. It, so. yeah, it is, it, it's classic Sorkin in that <laughs> it, it just expects you to go with the language. I just yeah. think it doesn't assume the audience won't understand what the the technical language is. It doesn't. It does assume that the audience isn't 
going to be able to keep up with the actual like ins and outs of everything, if that makes sense. Yeah, like, like the tactics and, and the way Jaffe's playing the case kind of thing. Because, I mean, they beat you over the head with him saying, oh, no, I mean, everything he said is true. I can't possibly deny any of that. Like, <laughs> yeah, and I think I think it's, it is, as you say, it's like classic first-time screenplay thing. I know Rob Reiner brought in a bunch of people to help kind of like script write it because like William Goldman comes in and does some rewrites mm. and I think him and Sor- uh, Reiner and Sorkin sat down and like edited a little bit but it, it does still feel like this was written for a stage yeah I mean all of his stuff feels like a play with an enormous budget basically <laughs> I mean I, um, I, I, maybe maybe the difference is is that Reiner for as interesting as his career is mm. is less of a visual stylist of a Fincher or a Boyle this is the only movie of this year's Oscars to be nominated for Best Picture but not be nominated for Best Director, Best Lead Actor or Best Writing, which is kind of wild. Two of those are insane. (laughs) On the one hand, I want to say, like, Sorkin's doing all the work, the actors are doing all the work, Reiner kind of just shows up and points a camera, but there are some really nice little moments in there like he invents the Sorkin walk and talk there's that scene where Ross and Caffey they're sort of bickering and the focus keeps shifting between the two of them I thought that was really well done yeah I, I, I think it's well directed it's just not flashy is the thing no I mean I mean so we'll dive into Reiner <laughs> now and then we'll do the background in 1992 yeah, but I think yeah, yeah. the thing with Reiner is is Reiner is spectacular at choosing collaborators he is very much an actor's director I think mm-hmm. The, why this movie works is he brings in Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson give two fantastic performances in this movie. Yeah. The fact that you have people like Kevin Bacon, we have Kiefer Sutherland giving like, are they fifth and sixth build in the movie or like they're fifth and sixth and fourth, they're like... Yeah, fourth and fifth, yeah. Yeah, but at this point in time they are able to lead movies. You're able to open up a movie with Kevin Bacon or Kiefer Sutherland in the lead role and they are taking presumably like pay cuts to take on these relatively minor roles mm. and by stacking the cast to this level they're like... Yeah. Everyone in it is a leading man, including a two-scene appearance from Cuba Gooding Jr. One scene. Isn't he in the scene when they arrive in... Oh, possibly then, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, but... I, I think I saw him in that scene. Like, again, it's a line of It's very like, like, oh, hey, it's Cuba Gooding Jr. <laughs> who, the year before, is a lead man in his own Oscar-nominated movie. Very, very young. And that, yes. you know, that movie... He was probably cast in this before that movie came out or, like, as it was coming out or something. So I doubt oh, that sure, got I... him anything. But No, I'm sure, and probably based in Hollywood as well, but it's yes. just one of those things yes. where, like, somewhere, somewhere down the line you have Academy Awards winner Cuba Gooding Jr. in a couple of years in a one scene courtroom thing where like mm. the, the, the cast is rammed and I think that's because of Rob Ryan able to bring in yeah. collaborators and interesting people like fun you fact at- <laughs> I saw this before I saw Twin Peaks and when I realised that James massive dipshit all time dipshit James is the little fucker from a few good men I <laughs> lost my mind sorry this is kind of the end of Rob Reiner's run mm-hmm as Ubermensch director. And like yes. every single one of his movies is kind of, I think Stand By Me is the only one that's kind of like a pure Rob Reiner joint. In in a way that it like it's the only one that feels kind of like uniquely him. Because this is Spinal Tap, it's him working very closely with Christopher Guest, who's obviously very much his own voice. Princess Bride is William Goldman adapting his own novel. And a lot of the the, the fun of that movie is obviously the, the dialogue and the script is really, really good. Yeah. When Harry Met Sally is, is Nora, one of Nora Ephron's first screenplays. And of course you've got Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan. 
misery is again him going back to working adapting Stephen King again but he's got William Goldman this time in tow adapting it so again it's just he does this fantastic run of all those movies yeah. and all of them have interesting screenwriters or interesting on-screen talent that kind of bring out the best of it and and then obviously after this movie pretty much it kind of falls apart where you have things like North and American President and then you hit his 2000s and no one has heard of anything <laughs> that Rob Reiner has done I've heard of the bucket list but that's because of Jack Nichols. <laughs> but yeah, but that's the that's the only one. The only one of those movies that exists is the bucket list. Yeah. Legit several of these. I'm like, is that a real movie? <laughs> it's weird that it would happen like that. Like a, a titan of the eighties and into the early nineties and then just just yeah, it, runs out of it steam. Just, it just collapses. Like it genuinely is. Like as I think before we recorded, we were like the first ten movies here is like an all-time great career. Yeah, and then it's just nothing afterwards. Is, um, it, is it like the way movies are made changes around him? Because I mean, it feels like he's a very like like you said, he's like a collaborator. He's like he's a good guy to have on a project kind of thing, and, he, and he's bringing all this stuff together. And then like I don't know, like it feels movies are very different, especially in the two thousands compared to how they were in the eighties in terms of how they're produced. Used, and I wonder if it's just that, like it left it behind. I, I don't know. But... I mean, I, 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 yeah, I don't know what it is. There is just something very obviously. Like when when Blank Check covered Nora Ephron last year, they threw when Harry met Sally in there as well because it's just one of those things where it's like, well, even though Rob Reiner has a classic like Blank Check movie career, when you look at the start of it, yeah. there is nothing that anyone has to say about the magic of Belle Isle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and so it's like it, it's a fantastic career, but it's like if you are going to do or if if Blank Check were ever going to cover, say Nora Ephron or William Goldman or Aaron Saw or Christopher Guest, you just throw the Rob Reiner movies in there yeah, instead. Yeah, yeah. A Few Good Men is more interesting to Sorkin's career than it is to Reiner's career. Yeah, Fundamentally. Absolutely. It makes him, basically. Yeah. <laughs> he, yeah, he's, yeah. he's a bartender when he wrote this fucking thing. Because <laughs> what? He does He does Malice the year afterwards. He reteams with Reiner for American President, spends a couple of years doing rewrites on scripts, and then... That's some good one, like The Rock and, and, and Enemy of the State are very up his aisle, I would say. Yeah, and um, then he creates Sports Night, and then he creates Westwood, and then it's yeah. just he's just in TV for... And he just dips into movies every now and then. <laughs> until, I think, because what, he, he does Studio 60 after he's left Westwing, because he leaves Westwing 2003, I think. He does, and he's never seen the seasons that follow. <laughs> yeah, he does Studio 60, and then it feels like after that, he kind of then settles back into... Gets back into Hollywood, yeah, yeah. You get Charlie Wilson's War, The Social Network, Moneyball, Steve Jobs, Molly's Game, and then we'll just stop there. We'll see what being the Ricardos is like, I guess. But he's threatened to bring the newsroom back, you know, Trump, fake news, all that shit, and it's like, I don't want it, to. I'd rather you brought the social network back, given what Facebook has become in the decades since. It would have been insufferable. I think a newsroom during the Trump era would have been... Because <laughs> yeah. well, what, the newsroom's kind of set a couple of years before the show is, isn't it? Yes, because, I, think, I mean, they I, open I, with the spell, the big... I always want to call it Deepwater Horizon, but it's a different thing. First yeah, episode yeah. is 2010, so two years beforehand. I think by the end of the show they have caught up, sort of, the third season they have Anonymous in it, or the bit, or Occupy, they have Occupy, 
and I, I think that was actually a couple of years before 2014 that that began. So I think they're always two years behind, but maybe they move slightly more to the present, yeah. So he can do revisionist perfect news coverage. Exactly, that is the main <laughs> issue with the newsroom, is it isn't... I always saw it as it's just like a nice little, like, yeah, it'd be great if they talked like this on the news, kind of, wouldn't it? I mean, it probably wouldn't, but... The thing is, it would be nice <laughs> if they talked like that on the news, but also you're going in there and going, like, it'd be nice if everyone was perfect and got everything completely correct every I mean, single time they did it, like, our great I mean, this, this is a thing that you're either going to... You're either on board with it or not with Sorkin, and if you're not on board, he seems like a big overblown pretentious twat but all of his characters are perfect everyone has photographic memory everyone is a prodigy everyone is so good at what they do unless like like will mcavoy is an is an impossible human being sorry go on unless you're a woman (laughs) kind of like even they are like brilliant it's just they it's it's how they're treated by the other characters i think is generally the thing with his stuff again we will get to demean more yeah no but i mean like i don't know even in like the newsroom everything is about how brilliant will mcavoy is and and all of Will's monologues are about how Mac the female lead is infinitely smarter than him and like amazing and like Studio 60 like they put Harriet up on a on a fucking pedestal and good for Sarah Paulson for like blowing up now I I always had a soft spot for her because of that but it's a weird kind of sexism (laughs) anyway this movie was released December 11th 1992 budget of somewhere in the region of 30 to 40 million makes 243 million quite big for a very talky talky movie but you did line up Tom Cruise Jack Nicholson Demi Moore etc. So not completely unexpected. Benjamin, yes. put that into a, a framework of 1992 for me, please. Yes. I mean, so it has a nice clean run, I think, over Christmas, where looking at it, it is number one for five weeks non-consecutively. The one weekend it is number two. I think Aladdin just beats it a little bit because Aladdin is a huge monster hit, but it is number one for a good long time. It's opening weekend, obviously number one with $15.5 million ahead of such classics as Home Alone 2, The Bodyguard, Aladdin in its fifth week, The Distinguished Gentleman, and sad, most sad of all, The Muppets Christmas Carol at number six. Oh, tragedy. <laughs> the best Christmas Carol adaptation. <laughs> yes, sure, okay. I don't have a don't... working list in my head, but I would be willing to go with you on that. Having Again, having watched all of the Zemeckis movies recently, uh-huh. the benchmark is very low, considering his uh, Christmas Carol is atrocious. Uh-huh. But that is how A Few Good Men fared at the opening weekend box office. So let's do 1992. So worldwide, we are talking about, number one is Aladdin, just mm-hmm. the continued dominance of the Disney Renaissance in this era. Yeah, that Lion King Aladdin one-two punch was uh, substantial. It's Beauty and the Beast Aladdin Lion King. Sure, 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 punch. sure. Bodyguard number two, Home Alone two number three, Basic Instinct number four, Lethal Weapon three, Batman Returns, good movie, A Few Good Men number seven, Sister Act, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and Wayne's World. Again, how nice is it to have like <laughs> there are a few sequels in here, but like a lot of new yeah. IP and a lot of comedy as yeah. well. Wayne's World was on my submitted list. I knew it wouldn't make it in, but I just want to say that to say it. I think that's why I'm enjoying Volume Three more than the others is because it's just really nice to hear some of these top tens whether they be that weekend or for the year and like what a diverse number of genres there are and, and new things and you know we're, we're everybody now everyone is constantly having a go at Hollywood for remakes reboots soulless sequels and spin-offs and remakes and everything the domestic box office the weekend just gone is old new original IP Snake Eyes G.I. Joe spin-off uh-huh. Black Widow, Uh Space Jam A New Legacy, Uh F9 The Fast Saga. Like, I'm already tired. There have been nine and a (laughs) spin-off 
Fast and Furious movies is everything you need to know, quite frankly. <laughs> Obviously, I'm less on board with those than the average person, and I haven't seen the quote-unquote good ones. But just make a new movie with these ideas. <laughs> uh, but even then, going down, like, Escape Room 2, The Boss Baby 2, The Forever Purge, which I think is, like, the fifth movie in the franchise. And there's a show, isn't there, of The Purge? I feel like Amazon made it, it got cancelled already. Oh, cool, 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 cool. Something about that concept is really appealing, though, because they keep fucking making that thing. <laughs> it's because it's a cheap horror movie, which is the... I mean, yeah. the same reason why there's an Escape Room 2, although I have heard Escape Room is legitimately fun in, like, a, a stupid way, so... Okay. Okay, it's yeah. about people being being trapped in an escape room and then having to escape because they've been put in there for like their traumas and stuff like that right great so it's it's sore but yeah, it's less grisly murder uh, more yeah. psychological torment gotcha i mean it's got one of your faves in it oh yeah deborah Amwell. do you <laughs> yeah. love daredevil i do, do love, love daredevil. daredevil i do she's a hell of a dungeon master if anyone wants to look that up okay so enough about money Let's talk about acclaim. What other options have we left off from 1992? Well, one of the most acclaimed movies of 1992, which I think might have been on a version of my list at some point from a similarly unproblematic creative person, Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. Yeah. Another similarly uh, uncontroversial person, Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. Mm -hmm. Then you've got things like Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me, Singles, The Player, Malcolm X, I believe is 92, Hardboiled, At Last of the Mohicans. It's a fun year. It's a fun, diverse year. Yeah. But I think... The two movies we picked are kind of yeah. a bit more frivolous than some of these other ones. Yeah. Obviously, I picked F Becomes Out, which is like camp classic, and you picked A Few Good Men, which is an interesting movie, but it's <laughs> kind of more interesting to discuss in terms of the starting points and where people are at in their careers. Yeah, I mean, I, you kind of went over it a little bit, but like the number of big name actors and even like high medium level actors that are just playing bit parts in this is kind of insane and then like among them all JT Walsh kind of gives one of the best performances <laughs> the reason it, it took a few years to get made as a movie because they wanted stars and they got them they got Tom Cruise who saw it as a challenge and went to see the play and, and learned all the legalese and, and stayed late and worked really really hard um, Jack Nicholson conversely worked 10 days and made 5 million dollars <laughs> while Timmy Moore got paid 2 million. Nothing to shake. I mean, obviously, at this point in time, Jack Nicholson is an insane draw at the box office. Yeah, I mean, Batman. Yeah, I mean, well, this is this is like two roles post Batman, and he yeah. got an insane deal for Batman, didn't he? Like, isn't yeah. there like some like crazy number that he got paid to be in? Mm -hmm. He's in first Batman. build. He got a share of tickets. And he got a large salary. And I think he got to dictate a lot of his... What would happen on set. He gets his friend cast um, as one of the randoms in his crew. He shows up here. We talked about it in Silence of the Lambs. And, and like, you know, a large impact of a character who's not in a film for very long. He's in four scenes. Admittedly, the fourth one is, like, 21 straight minutes. Um, but I guess he's probably in it for half an hour. Maybe slightly more. And this is as iconic a performance as there is. You can't handle the truth. Is immortal. But, I mean, it suits him right down to the ground, this character. Like, this, like, super intimidating prick who wields his influence and, like, legit shocked to be arrested after he admits to everything at the end. <laughs> it's kind of unusual that he's in it quite a bit up front and then he just vanishes for about an hour. And it's like, they're built... It's because they're building to him. He is the Hail Mary pass. 
you have to be incredibly careful about putting him on the stand. Blah 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 blah. Yeah, you get you get two scenes really quite close together, just kind of building up the mythos of him. Where like here's him in the room with his subordinates, here's him interacting with Tom and Demi, and then is there anything else really after those two scenes? No, I mean you, you see you see the meeting between him, Kendrick, and Markinson. He meets with our protagonists when they arrive, then they get lunch together, and then he's gone until the final thing. And you do feel him missing, and... Yeah, but they were paying him 500 grand a day, so... (laughs) I could see why they would not put more scenes in. I personally think... You know, you've pointed out some some problems with the script that I, I concede, but in terms of pacing... I think this is really masterfully done, where they inject new characters and plot twists and stuff every X number of minutes to keep it moving. Like, you get your five to ten minutes of setup of, like, here's what, here's literally what happened, and here's Galloway and everything, and here's your exposition. And you spend about 20 minutes of, like, look at Tom Cruise go. You introduce Kevin Bacon, you meet the guys who are the defendants. At about 45 minutes, Jessup makes his big threat. He, he makes this big lie. You know, the boys refuse to take the plea bargain. Markinson disappears, all this drama. And you don't see the inside of a courtroom until about one hour. And then you spend the next, you know, the second hour, you intermittently, fl- you get like a five to ten minute courtroom scene. And then you get some, and then reacting to being in court. And it starts to go Caffey's way, then it goes back Ross's way, and then all hope is lost. And then you have your big scene at the end. So for me, in terms of structure of a screenplay, I think this is as good as it gets, personally. I have <laughs> made many a controversial statement about long movies. And this isn't exceptionally long, like just over two hours. But... I feel it goes by pretty breezily, considering it's just talking. Like I said, Rob Reiner invents the Sorkin walk and talk because he's like, yeah, everyone's just talking a lot. We've got to do something to make people move. Let's have this conversation happen while they're walking along. And then that forever becomes Sorkin's trademark, whether praised or mocked. But Rob Reiner invented it, so yeah. Yeah, so from that perspective, I, I think it is a heck of a screenplay on top of all the, the very Sorkin-y dialogue. I, I think that is the thing with Sorkin, is he makes compulsive impulsively watchable things. He does know how to structure narrative and he does know how to build up tension. The weaknesses everyone has has pointed out in terms of everyone does talk the same. Even I as a defender of him sometimes, if you fire up any of the, I think there's like three volumes of Sorkinisms and you can see the same line repeated in like four or even five consecutive projects and it goes on like every tiny turn of phrase like a fraction of a man and he has one idea in his head and he's just slightly reframing it every time. And the thing is, I'm sure you could do this for countless (laughs) script writers, people who are well known for their scripts. But as you said, like this is a very well-structured screenplay. Everyone is at the top of the game. I think, again, this is helped by the fact that Rob Reiner is a great collaborator. You've hired these fantastic actors to deliver this dialogue, which immediately makes it... There is something about Sorkin dialogue delivered badly that does make it kind of grating. Who do you think's delivering it badly? No, no one in this movie is oh, delivering okay. it badly, yeah, which yeah, I think, yeah. which I think is what makes this so compulsively watchable. Is that like again because they've got that depth of cast, mm. it is really, really good, and everyone is doing top-notch work. But it is just one of the things where, like, especially when you're getting into his TV projects and stuff like that, where there probably isn't the same depth of cast, where like people sometimes feel like they're floundering a little bit with the dialogue because it is so fast, and he will always impeccably cast kind of the lead in his TV shows will always be someone who can. Yeah. Yeah. do the dialogue incredibly well like he he always gets someone maybe not after this point at a tom cruise jack nicholson level i don't think any of his movies have anyone at, at that level of power after this point maybe not in like the prime of their career no no i mean because the thing is like even moneyball is a little bit past brad pitt's like 
peak of his fame. Yeah, and like he was he was trying to get it made himself, so I'm sure he you know it's not quite the same as. Uh... But yeah, that's the thing. It's like this is prime period Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise. Like Tom Cruise is deep into his run of working with interesting directors. He's a couple of years away from starting up his mega franchise, uh-huh. but even then, he still has interesting performances before he kind of quits out on actually working with interesting directors. So like this is like a really good era for Tom Cruise. For Jack Nicholson, I feel like he's about to start doing less and less interesting roles. I feel that like getting paid a lot to not do a lot, it sort of only gets more from here. And then kind of the stuff that features him more prominently where he is doing meteor work tends to be worse from this point on compared to his like cameos or not cameos but you know smaller parts where he gets paid disproportionately. So he does this, he's got a couple of years, he kind of stops after as good as it gets where he won the Academy Award. So he, he stopped acting for four years after that. And then he's got about Schmidt, anger management, his <sighs> work with Adam Sandler. Something's got to give with Nancy Myers, Parted, yeah. and it's like the bucket list and how do you know which is like his his final movie at this point. If Scorsese isn't doing the departed, he's not doing a role like that. <laughs> yeah. Even the run before this, like I think he's he's great in Witches of East Eastwick. He's great in broadcast news. He is very good in Batman. I know you're of two minds of the burden era of, of Batman. That's the one I like better, yeah, for sure. I would never argue against his Joker. Like, his Joker is fantastic. It's it's kind of the stuff around the edges of, of mm-hmm. the Burton films I don't like. But yeah, it's just, it is interesting that, like, this is weaponizing Jack Nicholson in a really interesting way and a way that increasingly becomes less and less common after this point in his career. Yeah, you're, like, using his persona, his, his legend, to really fill this character out. And, like, you know, Tom Cruise does that impression of him that was improvised while they're prepping and all this stuff and yeah I mean he is such an intimidating presence and he is very good at like telling him he's a fucking idiot basically and then yeah I I just I'm a big fan of this era of Jack Nicholson playing villains in a movie who isn't around very much but is definitely a total kind of like he changes the temperature of the movie when he's when he's introduced yeah they build him up so much and like you know he's he's at like 50% of his dialogue is iconic (laughs) you know even even he sets himself up as a massive prick with a power complex when he's you know talking about you haven't lived until you've had a blowjob from a superior officer but as I'm a colonel I just have to take cold showers until they elect a lady president or whatever and like fucking Kendrick says the only authorities I recognise are him and God and it's like fucking hell (laughs) so what do you think of Tom Cruise's performance? I think it's it's excellent I think he's really really good this is the prototypical Sorkin protagonist I mean I feel he ages that protagonist up as his career goes on because I wouldn't say Will McAvoy has the exact same energy as as this but this is very Matthew Perry in the newsroom and I was thinking like this could easily just be Matthew Perry and Bradley Whitford instead of Tom Cruise and Kevin Pollack. Kevin Pollack's like every word out of his mouth is as Sorkin as it gets. Mm. I think it's those kinds of characters that I think he's the best at the kind of side character because all the problematic stuff tends to be tied up in the leads so you get this like quirky little side person who's just like witty and and charming and everything but yeah but Tom Cruise I mean I think he definitely juggles all the like dense legalese I think he's a natural for Sorkin witty banter and then he brings his own sort of mania to it I think he based it on the Church of Scientology guy before we knew that he himself was a Scientologist just the aloofness the unprofessionalism and then just 
flipping into having that encyclopedic memory and everything. I do think my favourite scene is, I think, when he's, like, getting increasingly frazzled after they find out that, that Markinson's killed himself. Oh, when he when he comes home drunk. <laughs> when he comes home drunk. And, yeah. like, he's just, he's so good in that scene because it is a side of Tom Cruise that he really doesn't show anymore, which is, the, as you yeah. say, the, like, the frazzled side where they let him show his weakness and stuff like that, where he isn't in control mm-hmm. for a decent stretch of the movie. And, obviously, like, that's when he finds the stuff in his cupboard and is, like, has the idea of, like, what to do for the final <laughs> section of the movie. But still, yeah. like, for, for a five-minute stretch that he is kind of doom and glooming and yeah, is yeah. showing mania in a very interesting way that I wish Tom Cruise got to do more nowadays. Mm, I think he's very protective of his brand is the thing <laughs> or his you know what he thinks people think of him and all that. It's every sorting character you know it's him like making a big meal of eating an apple while he's trying to talk to Demi Moore and like settling a plea bargain while playing baseball and not even looking at the guy sorry softball and not even looking at the guy. He's very charming and and it, it's very, on some level, it's it's like, oh, look, the fucking schlubby white guy who fails upwards kind of thing. Even something as subtle as he never has a pen and people are always passing him pens and stuff mm-hmm. like that. He's kind of a slacker. Demi Moore thinks he's shit until she suddenly thinks he's amazing. And, and Dawson won't salute him because he thinks he's a disgrace to the uniform. And Jack Nicholson drops the big slur. Doesn't think much of him either. I think it's a great performance though and like you know those those trial scenes I think I think he rises to that challenge really well and and it is your classic Kevin Bacon has the sight he he has the like the power of this is just the simple fact and Caffey's gonna try and like do a magic trick and dazzle you and that's exactly what he does he just comes out and he tries to be all razzle dazzle and flash and everything and it does work he baits Jessup into confessing something that he could have just no commented and denied the whole way and gone home. Which I think is the most interesting part of this is he, knowing Jessup, he's like, oh, Jessup wants to prove that he's a good commander and yeah. has all of these people under his 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 thumb and stuff like that. He's obsessed with his own status and power and, and how incredibly necessary the military is and all this stuff. And I do think that it is that ingenious method of, like, obviously it's a screenwriting thing, blah blah blah, but it is just, it's fun to watch hit when you realise what he's going to do, which is he's going to imply that he's a bad commander because people disobeyed his orders. Yeah, on some level, it feels like surely somebody would have pointed this out an hour ago that like if he was explicitly told if he gave the order nobody's to touch Santiago then why would Santiago be in danger for his life and it's like hmm yeah that's really fucking obvious why didn't anyone ask that but it feels organic and right and like I think because the whole thing is like they're kind of trying to sweep it under the rug from the beginning the thing that makes him actually try and defend these boys because I mean he they very clearly don't think much of the kids or Demi Moore does but the two guys are like they're just little fucking idiots and they did it and they're bad it's that he has that realisation it's like well they hired me because I take plea bargains and I haven't seen the inside of a courtroom they don't want this to go to trial they're trying to cover it up and like Demi Moore is onto it from the beginning and they like deliberately don't assign her to be the lawyer I don't know where I was going with that but it's just you know it's interesting that they bring in this guy who just it's Harvey Specter he just settles constantly and like takes little out of court deals and yeah that baseball scene and, and like a touch I really like is he and Kevin Bacon are friends 
like throughout the whole thing. Mm. The iconic moment where he's like, can you show me in the manual where it says about Code Reds? And then he just walks past and snatches the book off him and says, can you show me where it says where the, the cafeteria is? Oh, so you've never had a meal, blah, blah, blah. And then he like praises him for that in the bar afterwards and everything. And like, I, I think that's that's a, a big thing in, I think both in court cases and in, well, obviously in, I assume in military court cases, like they're even more tight knit than actual lawyers would be. But like yeah. you do spend all day with these people and you'd yeah. probably, Probably do have like a level of you can't personally invest in your clients because yeah. you kind of have to have that detachment and stuff like that and so therefore you can go out and have drinks with the, the prosecutors or you can go out and have drinks with yeah. the defendants. Yeah and like frequently they're defending people they don't like, don't agree with, know are guilty, all this sort of stuff so it, it, it's just it's kind of like poker. You might get a better or a worse hand and it's about how you play it kind of thing and they all just have to respect each other and like how they play their hands and you like literally says see you around campus at the end <laughs> like I'm going to go arrest Kendrick. That Kevin Bacon is the one to arrest Jessup. He goes off to arrest Kendrick, all of this stuff. He even says, like, I don't think these kids should go to prison, but they're going to, basically. And, and like, Tom Cruise, like, right from the start knows it's fucked, and, like, he does negotiate. I mean, it, it has this famously bittersweet ending where, like, he gets Jack to... Jack Ross, Kevin Bacon's character. He argues them down to, like... Was it six months of jail time and they'll be dishonorably discharged versus like probably life in prison for murder? And that's supposed to be like a really great get. And they're like, no, we don't want that. We didn't do it. So we're going to say we're not guilty. And then he eventually buys in, tries his best to defend them, wins. And then the exact outcome <laughs> is the one they didn't want. They do time served rather than six months and they get dishonorably discharged and like Downey's life is ruined. But Dawson finally respects him and like that's a bit that's a little bit grating is that like the consolation prize is that fucking <laughs> Dawson salutes him at the end and says there's an officer on deck or whatever and it's like okay <laughs> like the, the, that is the the big honorable thing and that's the part where like the military the America fuck yeah bit comes in a bit and I'm like oh okay whatever and it's stuff that would have washed over me when I was younger and I'm now a bit older and more critical and I'm like okay that's kind of shitty that yeah, they like yeah <laughs> it's just like the, the win isn't for him solving the case the win is for him proving himself to be a, a decent upstanding member of let's the, all be the... honourable and, and noble and bold <laughs> yeah I mean he won the case and, and you know Jessup a corrupt man is, is in prison and stuff but it does feel like a, a a pirate victory I guess you would call it because these kids are dismissed and little James is gonna have to go off to Twin Peaks and just seduce all these women despite looking like a fucking dolt I suppose we need to talk about Demi Moore. <laughs> we do need to talk about <laughs> Because, Demi so, fucking hell. <laughs> let's just run through Demi Moore's career at this point, mm -hmm. which is, this is kind of the early part of her ascendancies. Because obviously she was in a lot of movies in the 80s, she was in General Hospital, she's married to Bruce Willis at this point. She kind of, the ascendancy starts where she's in Ghost, yeah. she gets a Golden Globe nomination, and then just from here, she just kind of starts to have hit after hit after hit with Hugo Men, Indecent Proposal, Disclosure, which is a wild movie. <laughs> An entire episode of Big Mouth based around that movie, all culminating in her being paid twelve and a half million dollars to be in striptease, uh -huh. which an awakening really, for many a teenage boy. But which also completely destroys her career. Yes, and she is just not able to come back after that point. So to me, more interesting actress. I I like her in the projects that that I've seen her in, but she's definitely not kind of someone that you hold up as being like one of the. She's a star more than she is an actor. I do think she got done dirty though. Yeah, Hollywood absolutely did her dirty in terms of what it was like. Treat her as a sex symbol and then kind of discredited her 
as an actress and I think she probably could have had some like absolutely fantastic performances in her if it hadn't been for that she definitely when she was at the peak she was definitely taking these kind of maybe like she she never got the opportunity to be a lead in like a critically acclaimed drama kind of thing like she never got the, the Oscar play that you probably could have built up to her at some point in her career she is I think even she would admit like desperate for a, a box office hit so takes a pay cut for this movie, auditions while eight months pregnant, really, really earnestly wants to be in this movie. I think tries her very damn hardest, but the script is structured in a way that will deny her any look at acting nominations. Yeah, Um, so I mean, so the worst thing that this movie does is it tries to have its cake and eat it. Uh-huh. In terms of her character, in terms of the fact that she is right from the very beginning, mm-hmm. like she is completely one hundred percent correct. She she knows that this case is fishy. She knows why this case is fishy. She is pointing at all the correct things that she does. And then the moment she's in the courtroom, she is a liability. And she, the movie, yeah, they infantilize her. Like. Yeah, she is the only character in this movie who fucks up in any significant way. Like the two major losses in the court case that they have, where like they lose ground, are because of Demi Moore doing yeah. something that she shouldn't do, and her entire role is basically so that she can give Tom Cruise the epiphany he needs to yeah. to succeed at the end of the day. By, and, by being a, an interfering, browbeating woman who's tidying up a man's mess when, and, you know, <laughs> all yeah. that and shit. it is fundamentally gross, and yeah. I don't know how he is able to write this and go, like, I have made the smartest, most wonderful lawyer woman in the world, but, you know, she Based on my sister. <laughs> she should never try a court case. Like, she should never be in court and actually be a lead defendant because she'd be a liability and fuck everything up. Yeah. She outranks Kathy. She has more experience than Kathy. She is the adult in the room most of the time. The boys are being silly and she has to get them back on side. She is insulted to her face constantly. And then she's always the bigger person that's like, you know, oh, I think you're brilliant and that yeah like that that scene when he's getting in the car and she's like i think you're a fantastic lawyer and like all this stuff and then he fucking has a go at her for like going and speaking to you know i'll have you disbarred if you ever talk to one of my clients without my permission again and yeah she's made to apologize so much I think is the biggest flaw that like is, she is the bigger person always and then she's just mocked for it and like you know the whole oh I strenuously object like it's, it's yeah. fucked man <laughs> it, it's, it's so fucked and it's just I think what makes it more frustrating is the fact that like the movie really drops it into you that like this is Tom Cruise's first court case like he was chosen to do this because mm. he always settles like we we chose him because we don't want to rock the boat and I wish the movie would come back to that where maybe like the mm-hmm. person who put him on the case is kind of like oh you're taking him to court are you um hmm Okay. Yeah, exactly. Like the jag core just fucking disappear, basically. Yeah, even though like they obviously choose him for a very specific reason, and it's like, well, we know Demi Moore's going to take it. To, yeah, to yeah, We yeah. can't give her the lead role. Yeah, she's going to fuck this all up. She's going to ruffle feathers. She's going to get Jessup in trouble, and then I will be in trouble. It's fucked. And like one tiny thing to their credit, a producer gave Aaron Sorkin a note that said. If Demi Moore and Tom Cruise aren't going to sleep together, why is Demi Moore's character a woman? Which is one of the fucking grossest things I've ever heard. And Aaron Sorkin claims he said, because women exist for things other than sleeping with Tom Cruise. Which is quite funny given what we talked about in Secret Agent Men, in that Tom Cruise has no romantic chemistry with, like, anyone. 
And then Rob Reiner was the one, he did under protest write in a scene where they sleep together. And then Rob Reiner comes in, has more clout and is like, no, fuck all that. That's just silly. So you get like the remnants of like, she quasi asks him on a date and it's not the most romantic date. Like I don't think like smashing crabs together and <laughs> it's the most romantic of settings. And I think in one draft, he asks her on a date at the end and she tells him to wear matching socks again and all that shit. But I guess it is nice that they don't sleep together. Is, is the will, one silver always, lining in this movie. Yeah, I will always applaud a movie for having people with, like, I'm always down for more horny movies, especially in this era of less horny cinema, but I am also very much supportive of, like, when you have male and female characters who don't need to sleep together and not forcing them to sleep together for no reason. Yeah, like, exactly. Like, we're so, yeah. we're so trained to expect the pretty people to fuck, two leads to fuck, for it to be a romantic bond. If they ever start, like, opening up to each other, it's like, they're gonna kiss, aren't they? And it's like, some Sometimes it's like, no, they're not. They're just going to be friends. And it's like, oh! <laughs> yeah, like it's the, the one. Respect. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like the one silver lining for this character that is just. And she, she gets some good lines and stuff. And I think, she, as I said, I think she is doing well with the material she's been handed. It's just the whole thing is set up for her to look like the idiot. And she's not really given a proper, proper monologue. Like, I guess the closest it gets is when she calls him an ambulance chaser with a rank and all that stuff. But sucks. Um, very few women in the movie. And yet, I think she does what she can with the material. It's just, I'm sure when this came out in 1992, this is probably a of joy for like female written characters in supporting roles in in yeah. these kind of movies not to say that there is there was terrible like female writing at this point but like you probably would have had to go to a to a like a Nora Ephron movie to yeah. get yeah. an actual like interesting female performance out of someone although then you like what Meg Ryan's doing her thing at this point in time mm. and Meg Ryan's stalking Tom Hanks and Sleepless <laughs> in Seattle so yeah. I mean who knows but I mean you know she's she's the first one to appear and like she gets that very Sorkinist thing at the beginning where she's like rehearsing what she's gonna say and then she completely flubs it he loves to write people like saying things in the wrong order or whatever but yeah like it's so funny that like in his own mind is able to construct this argument that he's consistently written these like strong female characters and like every time it's this every, every time it is strong on the surface unable to get their opinions across flubs it under pressure is mostly there to serve the main male character in some yeah. way you literally have it like even Emily Mortar's character in Newsroom is literally there to make Will McAvoy realise that he is a golden god yes and like she she fucks up on the biggest point and yeah like Sarah Paulson in Studio 60 is like they, they talk endlessly about how talented she is and then she fucks up by giving some quotes that she shouldn't have and, and all this sort of stuff and... I mean, which is which is why Social Network and Moneyball are, are so interesting because there's no female characters and... well I mean the entire thing is fucking launched from him being a massive prick to a woman and then being wildly sexist to the campus and everything yeah exactly and it's very much like I mean I think that's the thing is like Social Network Moneyball Steve Jobs skirt around it is obviously Steve Jobs has the biggest supporting role from a woman in any of those three movies yeah. with with Kate Winslet and yeah. again it is of the level of the kind of like the, the grossness of like Kate Winslet plays Joanna Hoffman as a character to like make Steve Jobs realise how good he is the yeah. reason the movie kind of gets away with it is Steve Jobs is just a complete prick throughout the entire movie yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's the thing is it's like it is just a series of conversations with the same couple of people every single time they do one of these, these things and Michael Fassbender plays Steve Jobs amazingly prickly and yeah. it, it kind of offsets the the normal Sorkinisms. But is that one of his only works where like the lead is I mean all of his leads are like brilliant but flawed but 
is that maybe the most overtly, this isn't maybe a good person kind of role. Like, he normally is writing these brilliant men who need reminding they're brilliant kind of thing. I think Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg are the two that come to mind in terms of, these guys are arsehole. And, and those are probably and... two of his best works. So, like, yeah, exactly. maybe you need to lean into that more, Aaron. Like, it seems his interests are, like, boys being boys and hanging out. Like, these juvenile relationships between here you've got Kathy and Sam, you have Matthew Perry and Bradley Whitford in Studio 60, like, Will Matt McAvoy and all the guys in and, and Sam <laughs> Sam Waterston like he's really interested in that he's really interested in like just a massive asshole being taken down by a brilliant young person or, or whatever he's interested in all of that he's interested in men basically <laughs> and he's interested in genius and what yes. it takes to be a genius yes. and I think the most interesting things that he does when he's writing about people being a genius mm. is when that genius is such a colossal arsehole that it needs to be taken down. But you have the <laughs> arsehole that needs to be taken down at the centre of the movie, yeah. and it, it makes it so much more interesting. Like, yeah. And the only time he gets around it is, is Moneyball, where yeah. Brad Pitt is just a kind of nice guy. Yeah, kind of just angry. Does he have a co-screenwriter for Moneyball? I forget. If there's uh, like... Yeah, yeah Steve, Steven Zalian is, is the co-writer on that, and I have to yeah. imagine probably softening it a little bit or like yeah. lending a little bit of like... That human touch with the like, you know, his little girl singing to him at the end, that doesn't feel Sorkin to me, but maybe it is, I don't know. He just seems like he just isn't really interested in women, or maybe he in his own mind is like, I don't want to write what I don't know, but he sure writes a lot of... There is always like a woman who is like there to be how <laughs> beaten and stuff it's just like you know he's putting them up on a pedestal too much and like setting them up to fail almost so and, yeah. so taking that as a as a point in terms of his best works are when the lead characters and arsehole needs to be taken down mm-hmm. is this movie better if jack nicholson is the out and out lead and not tom cruise I can't imagine how that goes, personally. No, neither, neither can I. I'm just wondering, is there a version of this movie... Where it's where more it's... of a biopic about Jessup. A social network-style thing where everyone's talking about him as much as he is being the lead. Yeah, but I mean, you would lose all of the stuff. I mean, would Kathy then basically be ba- Kevin Bacon in that he is a bit funny and silly, but he's not... You're not seeing his, like, inner pathos kind of thing. I, I just like the idea of, like, that you flip this movie and Kathy comes in for two scenes and is just this annoying Jagoff who just slowly whittles his hand. Just a thought experiment. That, yeah, like, I, I don't know. I would maybe. be interesting to see the flip side of it, but I also don't know whether or not Jessup is a character that could carry a movie in the way that... I think Jack, Jack Nicholson could make it work. Oh, but... Jack Nicholson could carry a movie, I just don't think think there's enough to Jessup to yeah. hang a movie around other than for him to come in and be a force of nature are there any other like do we want to talk about Keith Sutherland do we want to talk about uh, <laughs> Christopher Guest or anyone yeah they got a good bunch of people to play like military assholes people who are like cultishly devoted the doctor is like villainous more than possibly anyone in that like you see him admit it basically he's like yeah everything you've just said correct and then bacon just is like no no no. but like in your opinion is this what happened he's like yes and it's like okay keith sutherland like just everything that puts me off about hyper fanatical the military and and just i don't want to offend anyone listening but like you know this kind of character and like the hyper religion the hyper pro-military views that thing of like i have two books next to my bed and it's like the bible and the marine code of conduct or whatever and like like fuck off (laughs) he's great he's very intense his just open hatred of Kathy. He kind of does a mini Jessup with him where he kind of baits him into snapping when he puts him on the stand on, uh, what, day four of the trial or whatever. But 
yeah, they managed to get that one stricken slightly or whatever. But yeah, there there are so many. We we've gone over some of them, like you know him snatching the book and turning that situation around. We've barely even mentioned it, but the you can't handle the truth monologue is fantastic. Um, oh yeah, I mean it kind of does, doesn't even at this point. In fact, my my counterpoint to that is when they are arresting Jack Nicholson and he screams, "I'm gonna rip the eyes out of your head and piss into your dead skull," is an incredible line. <laughs> Because you think he's got him at first on the whole, like, you know, you made all these phone calls, you packed all this stuff for one day in Washington, he was completely unpacked, made no calls, and it's like, oh, I think he's got him, and then he's like, I don't know, maybe he had no fucking friends, and he gets <laughs> up early or whatever, and then he gets up and walks out, which is just, like, in a moment, very representative of the character, that, like, he has no respect for anyone. He and the judge have, like, a nice little back and forth. The judge is like, you know, oh yeah, you will call him Colonel or Sir, but also you will call me Your Honour, kind of thing. And he's like, ah, you fucker. There's a um, hierarchy to these things in this room. <laughs> I outrank you. Exactly. I think, just coming back to my very first point, I like that they build court up as a big thing. You spend an hour not even going into a court, and then they will, you know, there are six big courtroom scenes, and it's just sort of, you know, it, it, the opening statements are kind of a stalemate. They both do a good job. Kathy seems to get a win with the Doctor and the Code Red, and then it starts to swing back, and then Downey really fucks up, and Markinson is a cool character. It's a great performance from J.T. Walsh. He completely shifts from being, like, completely subservient in mm-hmm. the first scene to kind of too cool spy level, yeah. almost. Yeah, he worked in counterintelligence. He's gone. Like, I do like the way Tom Cruise plays the surprise of him being in his backseat, that he's genuinely, like, holy fucking shit, where you would see a lot of people like i don't know be too cool for school and and shrug it off his comical moving the steering wheel wildly (laughs) while the car is not moving (laughs) is pretty hilarious but he was in favor of the transfer and like jessup tells him off and you know he he serves them up all this information and and then he fucking kills himself in his full dress uniform because jesus christ one of the larger characters in the whole movie and he's like i don't know 10th build or something like that anyway yeah good movie great depth of cast i think yeah. it is the ultimate even less so than social network which i do think is a great collaboration like but it's kind of more of a collaboration of two huge titans of directing and screenwriting kind of like collaborating whereas this feels like from the ground up everyone is is working to the same goal in a lot of ways yeah and i think that's just that's just the nature of rob reiner as director we disagree slightly on like the quality of the script but as first scripts go pretty fucking good oh yeah um, I mean, i'm not gonna i'm not gonna doubt that aaron sorkin has talent it's just yeah. it, it falls into a lot of first-time script talents and if, yeah if i'm gonna if i'm gonna do a hierarchy of like sorkin scripts this is solidly number four behind that like 2010s run before he started directing his own work i suppose i'm like overvaluing like iconic lines because you can do that in a bad script like there are plenty of bad movies that have a great line or two in them you know that scene is is immortal forever and ever all of that really so <laughs> it's a sorkin ass movie and uh, you're either one of me or you have slightly more sense so that's a few good men looking ahead to next week it will be 1993 and it will kick off with Groundhog Day so looking forward to discussing that but for now Benjamin will there be movies if you say you can't handle the movies that's lazy I mean there is a hierarchy to these things Matt it's unit core god movies (laughs) fucking hell (laughs) fire